0: Welcome to Your Active's Tech Brief Podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at the data sharing provisions of the Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is Your Active's Tech Brief Podcast. Today I'm joined by Inge Graf, Associate Professor at the Tilburg University, and Filippo Lanceri, researcher at the ETH Zurich University. Hello, both. Hi. Hi, hello. Thank you for hosting us. And thank you for being with us. Um, You have uh, recently published a study for the Center on Regulation in Europe, uh, also known as CER. Regarding the access to data and algorithm provisions of the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act, what were your main findings? Sure. I think that
1: these are two extremely novel and extremely interesting regulations, right? We're really breaking new ground in terms of digital regulation one of the first things that I think that come out of our study really is the sheer volume of transparency and data sharing obligations. So we try to go, these are long or let's say long documents, we try to go through all the provisions and we identified at least 22 different obligations in the DMA and 32 in the DSA that relate to data sharing and, and transparency. So first, one of the first things that we do is to just identify them all as well as all associated recitals in the text and, and this leads easily reads to hundreds of uh, of provisions. And then what we try to do in the beginning is how to think about how to box them, how to group these different mandates into into clear categories. And then we look at different uh, provisions, different um, topics. So for example, who's the target party? What is the type of data that is targeted? Who is the receiving party? What is the type of access that is required in terms of like, do you need an API? Do you need a website? How often can you request something? Uh, can you request? Do you need an API? Do you need a website? And how often can you request the data? And then we divide them basically in four groups. So, so we say there's one group that's basically trying to expand how regulators have access to private party data. One another group that basically relates to private parties like researchers, but also companies, journalists, others having access to, to to data from other private parties from digital platforms. Another group that's basically the public in general having access to to data uh, from from private platforms, and finally a group of obligations that requires regulators to be more transparent in how they do their work. So publish more reports, give companies access to data and to the file. And all of this actually, by the way, is part of a large interactive table that is freely accessible online and is one annex of, of our, our, our report. And then finally, we try to think about practical challenges in how we could implement this obligation in practice uh, in the the real world. So we look about balancing problems in relation to privacy protection, to the protection of intellectual property, information security, the rule of law. We come up, uh, we develop a seven-step balancing test that tries to, to facilitate the implementation of these obligations in complex cases. Something that, that I think we'll discuss more, and then finally, to, to really try to make this more concrete, we look at three case studies. Uh, so one about uh, the obligation to create online advertisement databases, which is Article 39 of the DSA. Another that's an obligation to share data for for large digital platforms to share data with better researchers like us, Sorry, article 40 of the DSA. I would say a very welcome obligation from my part. And finally, uh, the obligation that search engines share click and query data, so data on what people are searching, what they're clicking with other search engines as a way to increase competition in the search engine market, which is obligation 611 of the DMA.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Filippo, for this uh, overview. Um, uh, Inge, perhaps uh, we could uh, go a bit more in depth now, um, uh, especially in terms of this seven step, uh, tests that you have developed, uh, to help all parties consider uh, specific data sharing requests, how, how would this, uh, work in practice? How can you, uh, combine data sharing with, uh, issues such as data protection and, and the protection of intellectual property rights?
2: Yeah, we really uh, try to think through this process uh, of implementation by uh, laying down these seven steps that uh, we believe will help not only the target parties, but also um, the enforcers and other stakeholders involved to understand how this process could work. Um, So the seven steps actually follow from three main principles that we have uh, laid out. And um, actually, these three principles, uh, we believe they could also guide data access more broadly. So actually, also going beyond the DMA and the DSA. And actually, in the final part of the report, we also have this outlook to the proposed AI Act and the proposed Data Act, where we show that, for instance, the categories of data access that Philippe already talked about can also work in these newer um, regulatory frameworks so that the principles that we distinguish um, could also have uh, a more broader application, which I think is useful to keep in mind because the EU regulatory framework is becoming quite scattered. And by defining some common principles, um, I think it will help to uh, create a more coherent enforcement and uh, implementation of data access more, uh, uh, more generally. Um, but then going back so to these three principles that we then uh, divided into these uh, seven specific steps, um, the first principle that we uh, distinguish is um, um, uh, the one on uh, data minimization, where the idea is that um, the data to be shared should be um, um, the minimum uh, um, uh, the minimum required to meet the access request and the underlying purpose of the access request. And we point out in particular examples and also in the case studies later on how we think a combination of legal and technical measures um, can um, uh, ensure this idea of uh, data minimization Um, Then a second principle that um, uh, we believe is important to keep in mind is um, the legislative purpose. So what did the legislator have in mind when including these specific provisions on data access and access to algorithms in the uh, DMA and in the DSA? Because the legislative purpose can be used um, to understand uh, what the underlying objective is, and also the more specific the legislative purpose is, also the more um, probably we can um, um, assume that the legislator already has done this balancing, for instance, with privacy or intellectual property or security concerns. So the more specific the legislative provision is, the less room there is probably for Um, um, doing this balancing again at the time of implementation. The other uh, principle that we uh, distinguished is the one on uh, least intrusive implementation. So where we also believe that it uh, is important um, to also look at the interests of uh, the target party and come up with a mechanism of implementation that um, still uh, uh, meets the data access request, but also minimizes any potential harm. So one of our key findings also within the project is that probably these trade-offs between um, how to balance data access with privacy, with intellectual property, and with security, um, these will be key in uh, the implementation process. And by laying laying down these three principles – By laying down these three principles and these seven steps, we believe uh, these trade-offs can be made more specific and this will really facilitate uh, implementation.
0: Let's look at how this would work in practice. Filippo, um, you mentioned uh, that you have uh, illustrated your case with uh, three case studies. Um, we have covered uh, that access for vetted researchers in the past. So what can you tell us about the, the, how the framework would work uh, for the online advertisement database under the Digital Services Act?
1: Basically, we we developed this framework that has seven steps as a way of thinking about the the implementation of these novel obligations in practice. So the first step is whether the the stated purpose of the data access request. So so, so, a request to access data matches what is the purpose of the disclosure in the legislation and and it can really help advance such goals. So it's something that helps accomplish the goal of the legislation. Uh, then, if yes, then you, then regulators and parties should ask: Is this data access sufficient to achieve the stated purpose? In terms of how much data you're asking and what type of data you're asking, and if it's not sufficient, if it, if you by getting access to the data you're not going to be able to answer the question that you want to answer, then basically you should deny the request. But if it is sufficient, you should consider whether this data access, the, the data requested is the minimum necessary uh, to to answer this question, or at least. Uh, whatever extra that is given to it, it does not exceed what we call minimum risk. So the idea here, for example, is that imagine that you're looking at advertisement databases and you want to have like, I don't know, an advertisement that was displayed on Facebook. And then to answer the question that you need, you only need data on how many times the ad was seen. But then the database also has data on how many times there was a like of of the ads. So the idea of this only minimum risk is that if you disclose the that How many times the data was seen versus plus how many times there was a like in the ad? That because this extra data is kind of marginal from a privacy perspective, depending on the protocols you employ. Then, in this case, you don't need to reconstruct the database just to share part of it with researchers. And then, if the answer is yes, this is the minimum necessary, uh, that, then it comes to the more balancing part. No? So, this is basically to understand whether this, this data access request is founded in the law and if going to accomplish a a purpose that the legislators wanted. And then the balancing part is, can we identify a clear and well-defined non-speculative harm that would arise as a result of this disclosure? And if there's no clear harm, then you should grant the request. Uh, even if there is a clear harm, the question is, is this harm something that is explicitly recognized by the law as a countervailing harm? So something that could block the data access request. And if it's not, then as Inge mentioned before, it will basically be the notion that the legislator has already recognized this and uh, and did this balancing in in, in this case. And then if it, If this is explicitly recognized, then the question becomes, can we think of a combination of technical and legal instruments that would satisfy that access request? So imagine you can anonymize the data and still answer the relevant question. Uh, so this, in this case, you should grant the, the request. And then if no, then finally, you need to consider a broader balancing on okay, what prevails given the interest at stake. We imagine they're like your regulator trying to access data from a company and this is about understanding risks to democracy. So you have a really high harm for society versus uh, uh, the company's interest in protecting intellectual property, for example. In this case, you would say, no, the harm to society is, is larger, so you should grant the data. Vers- but it could be the case that that's the other way around. It's like you end up really breaching a, Private, uh, IP protection, for example, for not a clear gain in terms of what you're trying to answer with the data, what kind of like societal question you're trying to answer with the data. And then in this case, you, you would deny the request. Building on this, on how do how, okay, so how do you think about this in a practical case? Now, so think about this new obligation about creating advertisement databases in the DSA. And I would just mention here that uh, this is joint work with a co-author Lara Edelson from NYU, and Lara is actually one of the leading persons in this area. So it was really nice to work with her in, in this in this topic. So here we have a very clear obligation: no? you need to create an advertisement database for ads displayed on social on, on platforms, and so we could try to provide specific guidelines. So when you think about who is the target party, so who are the companies that are the target of this obligation, this is relatively easy, it comes from the DSA, there are these very large online platforms and very large online search engines. But then once you start thinking about the other topics, this becomes more complicated. So how do you define what is the target data? So how do you define what is an advertisement? So, so basically, should this include uh, political advertisement that sometimes in some countries, I'm from Brazil, for example, uh, Companies, some, some companies don't get paid directly for it. Does this include influencer advertisement? Uh, so people advertising, but it's not under the control of the platform. Uh, the DSA in this case narrows it down to only ads which platform receive remuneration, which is both interesting from a practical point because it gives a very clear guidance, you have to get, be, have been paid for it. But it leaves like there's this gap, for example, no influencer advertisement is going to be covered by this database. Another interesting question that we try to address is, okay, what is the territorial scope of this obligation? So uh, article two of the DSA says that it applies basically to recipients of the service established in the EU. Uh, So so let's say European citizens, but what happens if a new citizen travels abroad? There are many of these practical limitations that that we may need to consider and to cover, and we try to provide an outline for some of them, though certainly not uh, for all of them. And then, uh, and then the other questions, for example, on, okay, what do you do in terms of balancing? And then here's where I think that our framework provides a, a, good, uh, a good example, how to think about these challenges in practice. So uh, imagine that a, a company wants to, to say, no, I don't want to put the ads there uh, because this may lead to market gaming or this may lead to the expropriation of my intellectual property investment, which is something that we heard from the companies. And this whole process was a process that we had a lot of engagement with regulators, but also with companies. And and then here, what a framework would say is that on step four, while uh, step four and five is that, okay, this is a a well-defined non-speculative potential harm that giving access to the advertisement, you would actually end up expropriating part of the intellectual property investment of the platforms. So this would would be part of step four, but because this is not clearly recognized by the DSA as a countervailing harm, so the DSA mentions privacy, but does not mention IP protection. And the obligation in, in this case to share advertisement for which the the platform has received remuneration is very specific. You would end up having to say, okay, this is this indeed is a potential harm, but the red legislator here has done the balancing and he thinks that uh, you should actually grant access despite the fact that it leads to some IP losses. And then just finalizing that, you can think about the same thing on privacy. So. Uh, Posting data on, so you have to put data on like who has seen the ad a little bit, but also who has bought the ad. So if you think about privacy, you could imagine that a natural person, imagine that I buy an ad on Facebook, and then I don't want the my name to be spelled as like Filippo bought this ad, and that's what the ad has shown. This is a this is a privacy my privacy interest as well. Versus there's also the privacy interest of Filippo watching an ad, and then people knowing that I had watched that ad in particular. And basically what I think our framework shows is that in the question of the the person who bought the ads, uh, the the essay is clear that it must be listed because it also lists natural persons as, as someone who, whose data should be provided. So I wouldn't have a strong privacy interest because the legislator has done the balancing and said, in the case of Filippo buying the ad, this should be shown. However, it clearly says that you need to actually uh, anonymize the people who have seen the ads. And then I think here is where it was interesting that we tried to, in the report, to integrate lessons from law, but also computer sciences and economics. So we had a, a very interdisciplinary team. And so what we try to argue is that you can rely on a technique in computer science called k-anonymity, which is basically saying that you can look at how many people are distinguished by this specific uh, description of the person seeing the ad and if you if the number is higher than a threshold you know, we, in this case we propose 100 then you should display the information so, so imagine like that there's an ad on Facebook this ad goes to the database and then the database describes that the ad has been seen by a white man of a phd living in the neighborhood with zip code x and if this leads to less than 100 people uh, describing less than 100 people that would be similar to me, then basically you have to uh, anonymize or like make some of the categories more general. So it becomes, it has been seen by a white man with. Minimum X years of education, living neighborhood X, and so the X years of education, which is more general, would describe more people. And as you can see, this is always a complex and very dynamic balancing, which will require a lot of engagement between companies and regulators, but also civil society, who is researchers, journalists, everyone else who are the people consuming uh, these databases, using these databases, to try to find optimal uh, guidelines. On even even at this level, okay, you can rely on anonymity as a as a protocol to to help. Uh, grant access to the data, we still have a lot of more things to define. And these are things that we try to cover a little bit, but we, of course, cannot cover them all.
0: Thanks, Filippo. I think that just uh, illustrates the complexity of, of the task ahead. Um, Inge, what can you tell us about how this uh, framework would, uh, would translate to the issue of query data for eng- engines under the Digital Markets Act, a topic that has not been much discussed until now?
2: Yeah, indeed. Uh, The search query data sharing is uh, one of the other uh, case studies that we uh, discussed in depth in uh, the report. Um, And if you look at the provision in the DMA, it's really a very specific form of data access. And the provision is also quite prescriptive in the sense that it really lays down the type of data that is uh, covered. So, uh, ranking, query, click, and view data. It speaks about uh, gatekeepers as in uh, the ones that offer search engines, and it's also quite specific on uh, the beneficiaries, meaning that indeed this provision of the DMA has in mind that a gatekeeper search engine uh, will be required to share this search query data with any third-party online search engine, so with uh, a direct uh, competitor. So this uh, is relevant for um, applying or framework, because this also shows, again, that um, the legislator already has laid down quite specific requirements and uh, has been quite specific in the scope of data sharing that it intends to mandate. So that here again, we see an example of a legislative provision where you can argue that the legislator already has done uh, quite a lot of this balancing between Uh, different interests. And um, with regard to data protection, one should also keep in mind that in this provision, um, the DMA requires uh, gatekeepers to anonymize the data so that um, any data protection risks are already uh, covered by uh, the anonymization. So that any data protection risks are already covered by this anonymization that gatekeepers are required uh, to do. Um so then another um concern that relates to intellectual property uh which also comes up in uh, the balancing exercise uh, that we include in our seven-step framework. Um, And uh, here we know that um, gatekeepers have already made um, uh, the claim that uh, data sharing and also especially in the search engine context, that uh, this could impact their incentives to innovate. Uh, But here we can also see that in the provision in the DMA, there is actually no uh, reference to any countervailing harm in that area, so that here, again, because of the specificity of the legal obligation, um, there is not so much room uh, for gatekeepers to rely on reduced incentives to innovate or um, risks relating to their intellectual property protection um, as a way uh, to uh, prevent this data access from being implemented. However, um, we can also see in the provision that um, Um, There is a specific legislative purpose uh, that is mentioned, uh, namely uh, the uh, promoting the contestability of the search engine market. So this legislative provision, and that is also something that we recognize in our framework, this could be used to interpret um, the way in which the search uh, uh, query data sharing can be implemented. Um, And then beyond that, indeed, we relied also here on Laura's more uh, technical expertise to discuss uh, how exactly uh, the data access could work in terms of the timeliness and the mode of access, where a question, for instance, is should data be made available on a daily basis and how uh, how fresh the data, for instance, uh, should be that is required to be shared. Um, And also one more practical element that uh, we looked at is uh, the front um, terms that uh, the provision of the DMA refers to. So search query data should be shared on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms. And there's actually a question also of the costs, for instance, that gatekeepers may charge for um, giving access to their search query data. And here uh, we discuss that uh, we believe uh, this search query data is actually collected as a free byproduct of offering the search engine so that actually the um, the cost of obtaining uh, the user information and the search queries is uh, roughly zero. So therefore, uh, we believe that it would not be desirable um, to give gatekeeping search engines the possibility to charge a fee for uh, access to the search query data they basically have already collected but we do think that uh, gatekeepers should be able to impose some costs for actually converting the data in a workable format for instance. So there's also some uh, practical uh, questions um, that uh, come up in the different case studies uh, where it is about the question under which conditions exactly uh, the data could be shared and this is also what we try to engage with in uh, the three key studies that we uh, discussed in the report.
0: So as your research shows, um, the commission the commission will uh, have to figure out how to implement the Digital Markets Act and Digital Services Act, and, and for the first time uh, it w- in doing so, it will play the role of regulator uh, for uh, single market legislation. So you have developed a, a a solution on how this could work in practice. Uh, Let me turn this around. Uh, What is it that the commission should not do? What are the most significant pitfalls uh, on their path?
2: Um, I think uh, one uh, pitfall that should be avoided is um, to see this as frameworks that... um, um, are mainly targeted at um, the addressees of the uh, obligation. So by this I mean that um, the uh, the Commission and also the national enforcers, because actually the uh, researcher data access that we haven't discussed is enforced at the national level. Um, but in the implementation and in the enforcement, also I think it's important for other stakeholders to be involved. Um, and I think one should start thinking of creating uh, a broader uh, ecosystem of oversight, where it's not just anymore the enforcer versus the um, target party of the legal obligation or of the investigation, but other stakeholders should be involved as well. So that includes business users, other market players, uh, civil society, and indeed also researchers, which now have a right to get access to data under the DSA. Um, so these insi- insights from the other stakeholders—they are really worthwhile to include from the very start of the implementation process. And uh, we indeed see that the uh, Commission already seems to include them in this process. For instance, through these um, DMA workshops that uh, the Commission is organizing. So also, I think when we move towards actually implementing the obligations, it is important, yeah, to keep involved. Uh, keep uh, these other stakeholders involved as well.
1: Yeah, if I can add something here uh, to to Ingus, uh, I think that... Unfortunately, we have a long history of uh, regulations failing digital markets uh, in the EU, in the US, in Brazil, where I'm from and in many other places. And uh, and this is partially because uh, and, and I say this with, <laughs> with uh, let's say, a sore heart, is that to, we tend to think them too much as just like a legal obligation that's almost self-enforceable. And this is really not the case, right? We're really handling, dealing with the, most, the markets with the most information symmetries that maybe we have ever had in history. So this means that the effective enforcement of any of these incredibly novel obligations requires really uh, an ecosystem and it requires interdisciplinary collaboration. I think for us was incredibly valuable to have Laura on boards as someone who brings a totally different view. And uh, of course, you're going to need a lot of computer and data scientists to think about the implementation of these obligations at scale. These are hard to obtain for, for public bodies because of salary differentials, because of any other problems. But there are a lot of them that are in academia, there are in companies there are in other areas. So I think that if the commission and also national regulators, whatever they are, they want to implement this in practice, they should do their best to engage the broader civil society community. And this is not only through workshops, but really through engagement at the draft level, thinking about how to incorporate, bringing the expertise to work for a couple of years for the commission, and I know that Digicomp now has a new chief technology officer and things like this. I think that um, the main pitfall is to do not think that this is gonna be easy to implement, this is gonna be incredibly complex to implement, and the more people that you can bring to help with this this implementation, I think the more chances we have actually accomplishing the goals of this, this really novel regulations that we have.
0: It almost sounds like you're proposing yourselves um, for that <laughs> task. Um,
1: uh, I'm not suited. You need, you need computer scientists, not me. I'm a lawyer, <laughs> a lawyer and economist. You know that. That's exactly the point.
0: <laughs> right. Well, um, to wrap up, Filippo Lanceri is a researcher at the ETH Zurich University. Inge Graf is associate professor at the Tilburg University. Thank you both. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the U and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Stitcher and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Epicure. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi and thank you for listening.